You know what I feel like this show's been missing? Naval intrigue. Well, I've got some. In 2012, government forces in Ghana detained a boat, La Libertad. La Libertad is the literal flagship of Argentina's navy. It had dozens of Argentina's armed forces aboard. They were held against their will by Ghana. What beef could Ghana possibly have with Argentina? They share no borders, neither is a superpower. It seems really random. Well, it wasn't really Ghana that wanted the ship held. It was a private company, something called NML Capital, headquartered in the Cayman Islands. NML, despite its location, is not run by a Cayman Islandian, but by an American. So, what is a private American financial firm doing provoking conflict between nation-states? Paul Singer is co-CEO of one of the most successful financial firms in the world, Elliott Management, playing around with billions of dollars. And that's just his day job. What does he do with all that money? Today, I want to look at someone who truly exemplifies what I can never seem to shut up about on this show. That money is power. Money controls power. And this is a guy who, he gives you some insight into how that has happened. That's Michelle Solarier, a hedge fund reporter who profiled Singer for Fortune. She's covered the industry for decades. Years ago, as the editor of Absolute Return, a hedge fund industry magazine, Solarier was one of the first journalists to look into Singer and his fund, Elliott Management. He's a man of the past, I think. And I think that the policies and the views and even the way he has made money um, is part of what's gone on and what's gone wrong with our economy over the last 40 years. So what did go wrong? The story of America today is the story of unbridled capitalism overall and amassing of wealth and power in the hands of the few. This is the story of one of those few. Who is Paul Singer? I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast from Now This, where we examine power by looking at those who have it. Singer was born in Teaneck, New Jersey, 1944. His dad owned a local pharmacy. His mother stayed at home. The Singers weren't incredibly rich, but they weren't suffering either. Paul goes on to study psychology at the University of Rochester and then law school at Harvard. His first job out of law school is as a lawyer for the housing division of the investment bank Donaldson, Lovkin, and Ginrette. I talked to Jen Vietchner, a senior reporter at Fortune who covers hedge funds, finance, technology, about what Singer learned working in law. He trained as a lawyer, where he becomes really fascinated in bankruptcy situations, and he kind of realizes that he can use the court system to manipulate these uh, cases and make a lot of money doing it. Working in law taught Singer that law isn't where the money is. Money is where the money is. Singer gained an insight into how the legal system works that he used to win with his financial firm, Elliott Management. He started it in 1977 with 
an investment of $1.3 million. It was friends and family. Um, I was a, uh, a practicing lawyer. And uh, in uh, early 1977, I decided that um, um, what I had been doing, managing a small amount of, a tiny amount of friends and family money was much more interesting than practicing law. In the late 70s, Elliott Management becomes one of the first major successful hedge funds. At the time, hedge funds were still a newish idea. A hedge fund is what they call an alternative investment. So if you think about, you know, the investment vehicles that, you know, or you think about how you and I would normally invest through our 401k, that's what's called a mutual fund or an ETF. Hedge funds are generally reserved for very wealthy investors, um, as well as companies, people who have millions and even billions of dollars to invest. And the reason that it's called a hedge fund is because it's designed to protect capital. So while they will take a lot of risks, they are hedging those bets. Think of it a little bit like insurance for your investments. Insurance for your investments? I don't even have renter's insurance for the apartment I share with a roommate. Hedge funds are for people who have money laying around. They're generally reserved for what's known as accredited investors. So you need to meet certain thresholds of net worth or salary. Um, you know, generally you have to be making millions of dollars a year to even be eligible to invest in this. And that's because there is a significant amount of risk to it. Basically, uh, another mechanism by which the super rich keep their money and make more. It could be hugely successful and they can make a lot of money, but at the same time, the average investor doesn't have enough capital, you know, they don't have enough in their bank account to really put it on the line like that. And that's why this is something that is generally reserved for very wealthy people. Which is kind of a bummer because investing in Elliott management seems like a pretty good idea. Elliott has more than $40 billion in assets. They are enormous. It has a really strong long-term record. I'm not even sure where it is now, like maybe 12, 13 percent. Um, over, and over time, that's incredible. But one reason that he has stayed in business, um, and as, in, as it's the case with most hedge funds that have been around for a long time, the big money was made in the early years because there was not that much money in the hedge fund business and there were lots of ways to make it. Solari is talking about how returns are portrayed and how portrayed returns might not match up to the actual money a hedge fund brings in every year. But still, Genevieve Etchner sees Elliott as having one of the best reputations in finance, at least for the consistency of its returns. Elliott's really shown an ability to make money when everybody else is losing. And that's extremely attractive to many investors. If you put your money with Elliott, you are very unlikely to lose money simply because Elliott historically has not let that happen. Elliott management is incredibly successful with something called activist investing. Probably a lot of your listeners think of an activist as somebody who's out there lobbying for clean air or you know, women's rights or something like that. No, these aren't those kind of activists at all. They're lobbying for the rights of shareholders, which is a small group of people <laughs> that control, you know, our economy. Activist investing works like this. Say you have a lemonade stand. Your buddy, Jeff, invests in your business. He gives you 20 bucks in exchange for 20 shares. Great, you think. You can buy hella lemons with a double sawback. But then he sends you a letter demanding you change your lemonade recipe. 
Use bottled lemon juice instead of fresh. Fire your mom as CFO and relinquish control over the stand so Jeff's guys can run it. Jeff has guys, you wonder? Who are these guys? Jeff thinks these are all good changes that will make more money. If you don't agree to Jeff's demands, there will be trouble. Lawyers, more letters, private investigators revealing your sordid past cheating at Mario Kart, Ghana detaining your boat, and you will be forced out as CEO or head lemon squeezer. It's not always this clear cut. Maybe you really weren't good at running a lemonade stand. You were using the expensive and inferior agave syrup instead of sugar or using those cone drinking cups they have in doctor's offices. The business was falling apart and you needed to go for the company to make money. But often when an activist investor gets involved, a company's days are numbered. The activist is going to change everything, even if everything was working. They're called activists because they try to create a change at a company, but um, do it in a very active way. So whereas, you know, the average investor might sit around just waiting for their stocks to go up, activists are really trying to uh, make a difference. They used to be called corporate raiders. If I were them, I would have kept corporate raider. Activist investor doesn't have the same uh, bite. But it really is like raiding. It's a takeover. It all plays out in the boardroom. Every public company, um, by law, is required to have a board that governs it. And that's because, uh, you know, when you have shareholder interest at play, you don't want to just leave that decision just up to the CEO. So think a bit of a little bit like democracy. You want to have checks and balances. So that is the role of the board, to hold the CEO and the management of the company accountable and, you know, whatever strategy they're putting forth to make sure that that is working, um, as well as to ensure there's no conflicts of interest uh, and just generally good management. Board directors have a fiduciary duty to the company shareholders and therefore need to act not just in the best interest of the company, but also in that of investors. Public companies have boards, which are accountable to shareholders. Activist investors like Paul Singer become shareholders and propose changes which typically involve changes to that board. To avoid messy boardroom battles, most boards will just negotiate with these activists. So activists are generally trying to create a change in a company, whether that, that's management, sometimes they want a different CEO, or sometimes they want more say on a company's board. So a lot of hedge funds will say, you know, we'd like three of our own representatives to be on your board and therefore have a say in corporate decisions. Other times, it's saying, we, we don't like your strategy. We want you to do something different. We don't agree with this acquisition you've made. We think you should sell it. Or, you know, we actually want you to sell part of your company, um, you know, to, to another buyer. Or in some cases, it's saying, you know, where they're trying to break up a deal. So a company might be trying to buy another company, and they say, that's a bad idea. You shouldn't do that. And we're going to try to stop you from doing that. There's a lot of jargon in finance, and it's confusing. The amounts of money are so big that they kind of seem meaningless. But a lot of it is fundamentally reducible to that lemonade stand. Buying another stand, getting people to invest in your stand so you can upgrade to a fancier lemon-juicing machine, laying off the thousands of employees you had spooning sugar. But back to Paul Singer. Remember, Elliot is the activist hedge fund that sticks out from the rest. Elliot is considered probably the biggest, actually, they're definitely considered the biggest, baddest 
of the activist investors. Nobody's bigger than them. Nobody is more active. They are the most active activist investor. Elliot is global. They have taken their activism to Europe, to Asia. Nobody's really scaled their strategy, you know, scaled the activist strategy as well as Elliot has. There's no company that's safe from Elliot. And that's extremely intimidating to companies. When Elliot goes after a company, it usually wins. And even if it doesn't win, it shakes things up. Like, we won't go into this here, but do some research on Elliott Management and the South Korean tech company Samsung. Elliott's battle with Samsung ended in a political scandal that shook up South Korea's entire government. When Elliott goes after a company seeking board seeks or seeking for the company to change its strategy, very rarely do they walk away unhappy. In almost every case, the company will do what Elliott wants them to, and that makes Elliott extremely successful. That's what allows them to make money, because every time they go into a company, they have a really high degree of confidence that the company will listen to them or that they'll be able to maneuver such that the company doesn't really have a choice in doing what Elliott is asking them to. But don't forget, companies are made up of, like, human beings, not just assets. So what impact does this strategy have on the people who work for the companies Elliott targets? More after this. Paul Singer's Elliott management is willing to do whatever they need to do to make their returns. The strategy is super clear in Elliott's dealings with AT&T. In 2019, Paul Singer's fund invested in the telecom giant and immediately put out this 24-page letter making a series of demands for major corporate changes to make the company more profitable. It was called the Activating AT&T Plan. Elliot is calling for the sale of assets, operational cutbacks, outsourcing, and headcount reductions. This plan is designed to enrich one shareholder, and that shareholder is Paul Singer. That is Nell Geyser. I am the Director of Research for the Communications Workers of America, which is a labor union that represents 700,000 workers in private and public sector employment. It's important here to point something out. What's best for investors isn't always what's best for the long-term health of a company or the people whom the company employs, who Nell represents. We estimate that 30,000 jobs could be lost at AT AT&T if Elliott's proposals are put into place. That's a whole lot of jobs. It's hard to really even think of such a big number on the individual level. Elliott often seems to advocate for layoffs, or the sexier, sleeker synonym, restructuring, which often means restructuring people into unemployment. We've looked at Elliott's past activists' campaigns, and we've tried to do the math. At Delphi, Elliott and two other hedge funds used their position as creditors to intervene in the Delphi auto parts bankruptcy to block a sale of Delphi that would have preserved jobs. And instead, the hedge fund uh, creditors demanded a bigger payout and closure of all but four U.S. plants so that Delphi went from having 50,000 workers in the U.S. around the year 2000 down to 14,000 workers in 2009 coming out of bankruptcy. That's a loss of 36,000 jobs that Elliott Management was directly 
responsible for. And in the process, Elliot reportedly earned $1 billion in profits on the deal. That works out to be $27,000 in profit for Elliott Management per job that was lost because of Elliott Management. There's even an instance of Elliott's machinations basically economically destroying an entire town, Sydney, Nebraska. Another example is the company Cabela's. People might have heard the, the merger of uh, Cabela's and Bass Pro Sporting Goods Store. Elliott Management brought that about. It bought an 11% stake in Cabela's and recommended selling the company to maximize shareholder value. When the company completed the deal to sell itself to Bass Pro, um, you know, it, it shut down its headquarters, employing 2,000 people in a town of 7,000 people. So it was devastating to that town in Nebraska. And Elliott cashed out with a 73% profit margin, about $90 million, according to press reports. 2,000 jobs lost in the process. That's a profit for Elliott of $45,000 per job that it caused to be eliminated. This was so craven that even Tucker Carlson noticed. The residents of Sydney did not get rich. Oh no, just the opposite. Their community was devastated, destroyed. The town lost nearly 2,000 jobs. A heartbreakingly familiar cascade began. People left, property values collapsed, and then people couldn't leave. They were trapped there. One of the last thriving small towns in this country went under. Tucker Carlson and the unions are rarely on the same side, but that's just how flagrant Singer's work is. According to Nell Geyser, what happened in Sydney is standard for Elliot. It's a formula, and what it does is it puts the interests of short-term investors like hedge funds and private equity way ahead of Main Street and frontline workers. And it's, it's really a, a, a vicious cycle in which the investment community is looking for returns and they are not always looking at the human cost of those returns. Really, in some ways, the rest of Wall Street is complicit because they like to see stock prices going up too based on these short-term financial engineering approaches that Elliott pushes so hard. So Elliott says it could nearly double AT&T's stock price in the space of less than two years. How is it going to do that? $30 billion in stock buybacks, and that's a massive extraction of cash that could be invested in productive uses and in good jobs. All right, I give in. What's a stock buyback? A stock buyback is basically a way for a company to manipulate its own stock price. The way it works is that a stock buyback returns corporate cash to investors. The company goes out in the market and says, we want to buy our shares back from you. A certain number of them, a few million at a time. This increases the stock price because the same amount of earnings is now divided by a smaller number of shares. So it's just a mathematical equation. And from an investor perspective, you know, there's kind of mixed views on stock buybacks. 
Yes, they return cash, but most investors and analysts like to at least say that buybacks only make rational sense when there is not an alternate better use of that cash that would actually increase corporate value over time by investing money in the company strategically. And, and really, AT&T has many, many useful cases of, of what it could be investing its profits in rather than spending that cash on share buybacks. This might sound super boring, but it has an enormous real world impact. It's one of those concepts you might hear casually dropped on the news that could destroy tens of thousands of livelihoods. And it's part of Elliot's strategy. This you know, plan by Elliott diverts $30 billion from network modernization and broadband expansion, which is the backbone of all economic development and critical for reducing digital inequality in underserved communities. So we think that, you know, while AT&T could be connecting millions more homes right now to fiber optic cable and, and making gigabit internet service available to, to many, many households beyond what it has done, Elliot is, is making that less and less likely. That kind of investing not only hurts employees, but the consumers who could have benefited from this innovation. But it doesn't matter if it doesn't make sense. Singer generally gets his way. Here's Jen Vietchner. When you add just the pressure, I mean, you know, more than $40 billion of assets, they have un basically unlimited resources to spend on marketing campaigns, on, you know, phone calls to shareholders to try to sway them to their side. Even private investigators, as my reporting has shown. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, so we have naval intrigue, uh, boardroom drama, and now private investigators? Elliot does have a history of using private investigators some of their investors will go to meetings with executives with a um, thick dossier of stories and articles and basically ammunition that they can kind of flip through and say, you know, here's all the bad stuff you've done and we're going to go public with it if you don't listen to us. One thing that's interesting to point out is that Paul Singer himself is not in these rooms. He is not negotiating with companies. He doesn't even sign the letters. He signs off on the campaign at the top, you know, the top level. But he has his deputies who are kind of willing to roll up their sleeves and do that dirty work. A lawyer who used to represent Elliot told me, you know, to do activism really, really well, you have to not only be smart and persistent, but you have to be willing. And he's not everybody is willing to be the bad guy. So Elliot is willing to be that bad guy. They are willing to cross lines and step over boundaries that others wouldn't cross. Crossing boundaries and crossing international borders. We'll be back after this. Part of what makes Singer and Elliot so successful is that legal knowledge we mentioned earlier. Singer knows the bankruptcy system like I know the facility level of GoldenEye on the Nintendo 64. Elliot is masterful at using legal methods and legal situations to get their way. So they were they are willing to go to court. Um, you know, they are willing to kind of wage these battles uh, in the court system to force companies to do what they want. Now, Paul Singer is one of the most infamous vulture investors in the world. That's not my metaphor. I hope I'm usually more subtle. That's just what they're called. 
they purchase debt unlikely to get paid back at a super low price. Then, like how a vulture would pick at the last bits of cartilage clinging to the ribcage of a fallen antelope, they fight in court to compel a debtor to pay whatever it can, which has real consequences for workers, companies, and countries. Yeah, countries. How does a nation get into debt with a guy? I asked Michelle Solarier to explain it as if I was a child. Countries um, have to borrow money to, uh, to survive, just like, you know, you have to, uh, well, the kid doesn't really borrow money, but your parents borrow money to buy a house. And if they get into trouble, um, then somebody can come along and take over this debt at a very low cost and force them to pay it when they really can't. Buying debts and buying bonds is normal, but Elliot does it in order to sue. Elliot is particularly interested in sovereign debt, or the debt of actual countries. Places like Peru and Argentina. Countries cannot file for, they cannot file for bankruptcy. So they have to do a restructuring and they get all the different parties, you know, they have these creditor committees and they get everybody to agree on what they will accept. Well, Paul Singer and his um, minions, um, they said, we're not going to do that. We're going to say, we, we bought this. We have a contract. You owe us what, what we paid for it. And we're going to go to court and fight you and get the whole thing. So they, and they had done this before. They had done this uh, in Peru and they'd done this in Ecuador famously. And in Peru, what was interesting about that case was that Paul Singer was the first time and the only time he was ever in a New York courtroom arguing. And he said, the quote that he said, this famous quote of his that he said in court was that Peru would either pay us in full or be sued. And so that was actually against the law. There was something called a Champerty Law in New York that says you cannot buy debt just to sue. Um, this was something that came out of common law in the Middle Ages. People going around buying up the debts of people just so they could sue them. Um, and um, so he fought um, to overturn that law, and he did overturn that law, and he also overturned that case. And so that was his first big success. But while that was percolating, the, the Peru situation was kind of unresolved. He went to court with Argentina. But he did not go and file this suit under his under the name of Elliot, his son. He created another vehicle so he could hide the name of Elliot as he went into Sue so nobody would know it was him. And once that law was changed, and he finally sort of backed off on, on that because it was no longer that important to be anonymous. In fact, it was more important for him to have his name associated with it because now he was this became known as this kind of famous fearsome hedge fund manager who you didn't who you dared not cross because he would go to the ends of the earth uh to to beat you <laughs> and that's what he did with argentina paul singer who runs elliot is famous for waging a years-long campaign uh, with the government of Argentina over bonds. I mean, this is a guy who is willing to almost go to war, whether it's countries, whether it's companies, no matter how big, and they will not let up. 
So how do these obscure legal battles play out in the real world? Elliott Management subsidiary NML Holdings bought up a bunch of Argentine bonds. They were one of many funds to do so. In 2001, Argentina defaulted on all $132 billion of loans during a huge depression. The GDP dropped and unemployment went above 20%. If you don't have the money to pay something and somebody is forcing you to pay it, that's what they do. And if they're pushing you so, so hard, eventually you have to, you know, you have to default. You can't, you have to say, I can't pay you anymore. 93% of the creditors accepted a deal that was less profitable for them, but wouldn't destroy Argentina further. Most people want to negotiate. They want you to survive. So they'll say, OK, we agree. We won't take as much money. But somebody can come along and say, hey, if I go outside the norms of society uh, and say, uh-uh, I'm going to bleed you till the very end, that person, because of the way the laws are in this country, and basically, not, I wouldn't say around the world so much they've changed, but, but let's just say this country, um, the way the laws are structured, you're allowed to do that. Uh, one person can, can take advantage of somebody who's down and out, and they can profit off of it. In Argentina, basically, Paul Singer had gone to courts. They owned bonds of Argentina, and the uh, leader of Argentina at the time said, well, they'd rather fight Elliot um, or they'd rather send the entire country into default before they would pay Elliot uh, on its bonds. Remember that boat from earlier? I'm not just going to bring up a boat and not bring it back. In June of 2012, an Argentinian Navy ship, La Libertad, one of the largest and fastest sailboats in the world, took off from Buenos Aires with hundreds of Navy crew members and a few dozen graduating naval students aboard. It's a traditional trip the vessel took to commemorate graduation. It was meant to make this big journey around the world, traveling up the Atlantic coast of South America to Europe and to Africa. It's a beautiful ship, a prideful symbol of the Argentinian Navy. On October 3rd of that year, La Libertad docked in Ghana, the port of Tema. Routine, a part of the journey, but it didn't go as planned. La Libertad and all those aboard were detained by Ghana, but it was Elliot management who was behind it. Elliot had done what it does best. It went to court, and it was a Ghanaian court that ordered the seizure of the boat. A few weeks into the boat being detained, armed Ghanaian officials tried to board the vessel to move it to another berth, and Argentine sailors pulled their weapons. The situation de-escalated, but it was almost an armed conflict between Ghana and Argentina. Eventually, the United Nations had to step in. The UN Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, which is a real thing and not from Pirates of the Caribbean, demanded the ship be released, and it was. It arrives back to Argentina to fanfare, an air show, televised speeches. Singer and other creditors eventually reached an agreement with Argentina, but the battle has had a huge impact on the 45 million people who live in Argentina. Just like in Sydney, Nebraska, or at any of the companies hit by Singer layoffs, the regular people were the ones who suffered the most. But for Singer, it meant a huge windfall. After it all was said and done, he made like $2 billion on Argentina. Um, people at Elliott would say to me, well, 
you know, it was a long period. It wasn't as much money as it looks like. But if you divide 20 times, which is a 2000% by, uh, if my math is right, by uh, 15 years, it still comes out to over 100% return a year on that investment. This is the power that Singer wields. If he doesn't believe a leader should be in place, whether or not he does it directly, he's shown an ability to essentially take out corporate leaders as well as heads of state. And he's by far the only investor who can do that. He's a guy that can sway the balance. Uh, he can really interfere in the world's economies and, and influence the outcomes. But if you're listening to this from America, know this. He's not only exerting foreign influence abroad, he's got a lot of power at home too. How Paul Singer is controlling your government after this. We've talked about how Paul Singer makes his money, but how does he spend it? Paul Singer probably first came onto my radar um, maybe around 10 years ago when I became aware that, that he was uh, a major funder of some of the think tanks that had played uh, a really enormous role in uh, pushing the United States into uh, the uh, invasion of Iraq. That's Eli Clifton. My name is Eli Clifton, and I'm the director of the Democratizing Foreign Policy Program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Um, and part of my work, and what has actually been my most of my career, has been uh, reporting on the intersection of money and politics and U.S. foreign policy. Clifton has taken a close look at how Paul Singer aims to influence United States foreign policy. He is interested in another sort of sometimes fringe aspect of the Republican Party, which is advancing a very aggressive foreign policy, the, the type of foreign policy that, frankly, Donald Trump essentially ran against, um, which led to the invasion of Iraq that pushes us closer to a war with Iran. Um, and that you would sort of say that Paul Singer is very closely aligned with what's known as sort of the neoconservative wing of the Republican Party, who are, are extremely hawkish, particularly about U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, um, and see uh, U.S. foreign policy policy as fundamentally being um, uh, a tool that, that, that must be used in a very militarist manner in, in order to keep the world safe for the United States and some of its closest allies, which would include Israel, which is a very important uh, um, issue for, for Singer, who, who, who has put a lot of his philanthropic dollars toward projects in Israel, as well as advancing um, Israel's um, uh, advocacy and, and stature uh, in, in the United States. Tens of thousands of deaths in Iraq later, and that's the conservative estimate, those that advocated for the disastrous and lost war, including groups funded by Paul Singer, still have a seat at the foreign policy table. And it's easy for them, too, because it's a smart investment. With foreign policy in particular, there's a couple reasons that, that, that following the money, uh, I believe, is, is particularly important. Uh, for one, uh, it's actually not that contested a policy space. In foreign policy, very often, there's only one side that really is in the room or that has the ear of policymakers. Uh, and that doesn't mean that they don't spend anything, but, but it often means that, that, that the amounts of money that can actually, uh, in my belief, strongly influence foreign policy uh, 
can actually seem triflingly small. It can be you know, a few million dollars here or there um, spread out across campaign contributions or through donations to think tanks. Uh, and suddenly, you know, you, you can actually be, be moving the needle in terms of, of how politicians and policymakers uh, see and understand a foreign policy challenge, uh, as well as what they believe to be the available policy options that, 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 that are at their disposal. A few million bucks here and there is like literally nothing for Paul Singer. And it's effective. Another bit of smart investing is the type of organizations Singer spends on. By investing in think tanks and other organizations that wage battles in the realm of ideas, Singer molds policy while getting a pretty nifty tax write-off. I think it's important to understand legally what these entities are. And and the Foundation for Defense Democracies, the American Enterprise Institute, and pretty much any other organization that you've heard of discussed as a so-called think tank in Washington, um, or anywhere in the United States for that matter, are uh, 501c3 nonprofit organizations. Now, that is a very big umbrella of organizations um, that certainly goes well beyond think tanks. And basically, any charity you've heard of is probably a 501c3 nonprofit as well. And... 501c3s are, are rather interesting in that um, you can't engage in, in real electioneering activities or very little. You can't go endorsing candidates, um, but they can talk about issues in ways that clearly steer the political conversation. Um, and on the other side of that, the donors to 501c3s actually get a tax deduction for donating to them. And these organizations do not need to disclose their donors the way that um, a PAC or a candidate might need to disclose their donors through the, uh, through, through the Federal Election Commission. Um, so what you get is, uh, is a great financial vehicle. This stuff works. Think tanks produce research that is often referenced by congresspeople writing legislation and by journalists writing the news. Think tank representatives are held as generic experts without any real insight into who is funding them. So when you hear something positive sounding like Foundation for Defensive Democracies, consider they may not be defending democracies at all. There's real power in the secrecy of think tanks. They, they absolutely are seeking to influence and ultimately try to capture the, the, this realm of ideas or, the, or the, the policy debate around specific issues. When you start to peel back the layers of that, you'll realize that these organizations, they share many of the same funders, and these funders fund many of the same politicians. So these funders are now controlling both the voices that are the supposed experts speaking to the politicians who happen to be also funded by the same people. Um, and now you've created a pretty effective closed feedback loop. It really reminds me a lot of how Paul Singer deals with his investments. Here's Jen Vietchner. He does approach politics very similar to the way that he makes investments. He's going to put his money behind candidates that he believes will uh, advocate for causes that will benefit Paul Singer, that will potentially benefit him as an investor, or that he just personally believes in. But there's another side of it, too. Here's Singer when he was asked about a political moment he's proud of. In that, uh, in the case of gay rights, um, my uh, younger son um, came out to me as gay in 1998 when he was uh, 21 years old. And um, uh, uh, shortly after some brief discussions, um, I became very interested in, um, uh, in um, uh, being a, uh, a funder of, um, of gay rights groups, um, of helping out in that, um, uh, in that realm. Um, the culmination of that uh, was, um, um, and it was really a very 
um, uh, very highly strategic and well-executed project was a partnership with the governor of New York, um, with uh, us and our uh, our okay. Democratic friends to um, uh, to make um, uh, gay right uh, gay marriage uh, uh, legal in New York, which required um, uh, Republican state senators' help, and we were involved in that. Yeah, the guy we've been talking about this whole time, uh, detaining naval ships and hiring private investigators, helped legalize gay marriage in New York. That's huge. If you listen to Who Is Season 1, you might remember. It was Paul Singer who forced Mike Pence to back down on anti-LGBTQ legislation that he pushed as governor of Indiana. That's a deeply held religious conviction of Pence. So you could say that Paul Singer is more powerful than God. A God who uses his power to do, like, the bare minimum of human rights. Then again, here's Nell Geyser from the CWA. He's someone who also tries to make himself seem like a middle-of-the-road kind of person. He does his own PR campaigns around things like gay rights and, and advancing women in the Republican Party. He has a gay son. And this is something that, that a lot of you know conservatives or rich people in general will do is something called pinkwashing themselves. They will appear to be liberal on social issues. And in the meantime, they will engage in really harmful actions towards working people, towards, uh, you know, around foreign policy, around all kinds of things that can kind of get buried in the business pages and not covered in the kind of sexy front page, social media friendly media. And I think that, that that's where you know, Paul Singer is is very successful at burnishing his image as a financier and as a decent human, when in reality, if you dig in just a little bit, you see that he is putting his money behind some of the most anti-worker, anti-people policies that are are really uh, sending our country in a, in a downward direction. And of course, it's an election year, and Singer is spending big. Um, and coming into the current political cycle, uh, Singer is again emerging as a major, major, major uh, funder of the Republican Party's uh, House and Senate campaigns to, to the big super PACs that sort of uh, oversee the, the the House and Senate races and the most contested ones. And, and those monies are, are controlled by House and Senate Republican leadership uh, and then allocated out to candidates uh, who they who they favor as well as who they think need the money the most. And uh, just looking them over here, for instance, he's already cut uh, in April of, this, of, of, that was of 2019, he had already cut a $1 million check to the Congressional Leadership Fund um, and a uh, $2 million to the Senate Leadership Fund. Uh, the Senate Leadership Fund and the Congressional Leadership Fund really get overlooked in terms of the importance of these funds and the fact that this is actually where the billionaire donors give their money. Uh, because these are uh, funds that, uh, if you give a lot of money to these, you're effectively, you could theorize that you're you, you going to get a lot of influence over the entire Republican uh, uh, membership of, of the House or the Senate, depending on which fund you're giving to. This gives you top-down access. It gives you top-down influence, um, and it's where you write the big checks to show that, that you are an important donor, uh, not just to individual politicians, but that you're central to the party as a whole. 
Isn't it weird that there's a guy who is central to the party as a whole who so many Americans haven't heard of? Before you listened to this episode, had you heard of Paul Singer? Do you remember that Argentine ship being on the news? When you are an activist who is willing to go to the lengths that Elliot is, you do not live in a glass house. You do not give people any opportunity to go after you, even if you are waging your power and using your money to influence outcomes, whether it's politics, whether it's companies and markets. And I think that's why he doesn't want you to know who he is. Um, and yeah, I mean, when you are so powerful and when you do you know, use your money in ways that are controversial and that maybe a lot of people wouldn't agree with, you're going to keep um, you know, somewhat of a low profile. I think there's probably a lot more that we don't know. Here's what we do know. Paul Singer has managed to keep a relatively low profile while forcing business changes at major American companies that result in tens of thousands of layoffs. He buys sovereign debt and uses the courts to push entire countries into default, ensuring economic hardship for millions of people. And what does he do with all this money he makes off these investments? Foment American militarism and advocate for war in the Middle East, which, you know, we already have plenty of. You might think that all of this would make Singer's fund, Elliott Management, a pariah, but he's a villain people admire. And when Elliott opens up to new investors, it sells out in an hour. When someone very rich is looking to invest in a hedge fund, they may not see Singer's history of seizing warships, hiring private investigators, and destroying livelihoods. They just see what they believe to be reliably high returns. Or maybe they do see that history and think, wow, this guy's good. And Singer is good by his own metric of what he considers success. Like he told Bloomberg. What would you like to see as the headline of what you've accomplished in your life? He tried to make a difference. He um, uh, protected a lot of people's uh, capital over a long period of time. Protecting capital and making a few very rich people a little bit richer. But look at what it cost. Chaos in Argentina. They defaulted again as we were producing this. And unemployment in Nebraska and across America. But hey, at least he made his returns. He definitely sees his return on his investment in American politics. Singer is a central figure of the Republican Party, and he's spending big in 2020. Like I asked before, had you heard of Paul Singer before you listened to this? If not, that's by design. It's easier for Singer to do what he does without people watching. And that's why watching is so important. On the next episode of Who Is, we examine another billionaire donor who uses his immense wealth to influence the global political process. He's a survivor of the worst horrors of World War II, who would go on to make billions trading currencies for his own hedge fund, Quantum. He's also donated billions in support of an open society. And he's one of the most hated, reviled people in the world, accused of being linked to almost every global conspiracy, from QAnon to Pizzagate. Next time, who is... George Soros. Hey, isn't that the guy who sends me those Quiznos gift cards every week with the podcast talking points? 
A sincere thank you to our guests, Michelle Solarier, a renowned finance journalist who has covered hedge funds and the men who run them for New York Magazine, Fortune, Institutional Investor, and the New York Post. Eli Clifton, an investigative journalist who focuses on how money influences U.S. foreign policy and research director of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft's Democratizing Foreign Policy Program. Nell Geyser, the Director of Research for the Communications Workers of America. And Jen Vietchner, a senior writer at Fortune Magazine, where she covers finance, tech, and hedge funds and their role in the market. Who Is is a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, your writer and senior producer. Michael McDowell is our producer. Kinsey Clark is our associate producer. Editing and mixing by Will Stanton. Production support from Pedro Alvira, Rob Boehner, and Amanda Earle. Ron Flats is our senior producer. Our executive producers are Nancy Hahn, Brett Kushner, Sarah Frank, and Mangesh Vakuder. At Now This, Tina Xaros is our chief content officer, and Ethan Stephanopoulos is our president. Special thanks to Matt McDonough, Devin Rogerino, PJ Evans, and Elias Acevedo for their excellent work on the original video series of Who Is, which you can find on Facebook and YouTube. Who Is, the podcast, season two. New episodes out every Tuesday. If you like the show, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and tell all your friends.